0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP Conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jennifer Chang, Dave Lucas, and Mary Shebist. You will now hear John Castine provide introductions.
1: Good morning and welcome. My name is John Castine. I'm glad to have all of you here for this panel honoring the 80th birthday of the poet Charles Wright. Charles Wright probably needs a scant introduction, so I will be brief. He was born on August 25th, 1935. He will turn 80 this year. He is the winner, of course, of the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and is the current poet laureate in the United States. Most germane to this panel. Charles is, I think, instrumental in what I think of as the genetics of influence in writing programs but also in the lives of writers all over the U.S. A friend of mine and I once tried to make a list of all of the people that we knew had been Charles's students or students of Charles' students, and the list was prodigious. It would take us 45 minutes to do all of the names justice. Charles is really the author of generations of generous and thoughtful training in craft, the idea of a real loyalty, an ongoing lifelong loyalty to one's obsessions, and uh, the sure-footedness of the poetic line. Uh, I, I think those are some of the common denominators for me. Before my remarks, I'd like to introduce uh, my fellow panelists in the order in which they will appear First, Jennifer Chang holds a master's in fine arts from the University of Virginia and did her doctoral work there. She's currently on the faculty of the English department at George Washington University. She co-chair, I believe this is true that you still co-chair the advisory board of Kundiman? I do. And is the author of a book of poems, The History of Anonymity, from the VQR poetry series, the University of Georgia Press. Also to my right is Dave Lucas, holds an MFA from UVA and a PhD in English literature from the University of Michigan. Currently teaches at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland where he runs the Brews and Prose Reading Series. He is the author of a volume of poems, Weather, also from the VQR UGA poetry series. Presenting last to my left is Mary Givist. Mary did her undergraduate work at the University of Virginia with Charles took an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop and is the author of the books Granted from Alice James, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Incarnadine, which won the National Book Award last year. She teaches at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. My name is John Castine. Like Mary, I am an alumnus of the University of Virginia and the Iowa Writers Workshop. Mary and I went through both of those programs together. I'm the author of a book, well, two books, Free Union and For the Mountain Laurel, both from the VQR and UGA series. I teach at Sweetbriar College, presently. (laughs) 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 A little too soon? Most of what I have to say has to do with Charles's presence in my life as a teacher. Charles was the first person to tell me that he thought that I would be a good teacher when he told me that I had no idea what he was talking about. It didn't make any sense to me at all. He knew something about me before I knew it about myself. No one would resist the temptation to hagiography at an event like this more than Charles himself would. Partly that's because he distrusts hagiography in general. He's, I think, a keener observer of things, um, than would allow a a more sentimental kind of memory. But Charles has a fundamental humility about writing and teaching. He deflects attention away from himself in the classroom, and he deflects attention away from the self in his writing and poetic practice. I've known Charles since 1991 with you, I think. And it seems like for 24 years now, I've been listening to him say that he has no business asserting any opinion that would derail ambiguity, that he knows nothing, that he has no wisdom or expertise at all to impart. And for 24 years, I've been hearing him rely on the conversational fallback, a rhetorical question, what do I know? What do I know? He says that all the time. He's asking rhetorically as though the only possible answer could be nothing, verbally, but in his poems he's been giving direct conditional answers with an ongoing sense of revision and transmutation to that question for his entire career. And watching that has been tremendously instructive. Charles as a teacher always had a fundamental insistence on taking the work with the utmost seriousness but not taking himself seriously at all. He came to the college where I teach and gave a reading two weeks ago. The microphone was pretty lousy. And he got frustrated at a certain point and asked the audience if they could hear him. And people sort of politely made clear that they couldn't. And he pretended very loudly to bite the microphone, (laughs) but with the sound effect, and looked out at everyone and said, did you hear that? You know, along with Deborah Nystrom, my first teacher at UVA, Charles really showed all of us how to be the kind of person for whom there was no daylight between the constructed persona on the page and the real person in the real world. His ethic was that you don't say things you don't mean. You don't do things that you don't have a reason for doing in life or on the page. And that if you have a choice between artifice and silence, that there's an obvious one to prefer. And that has always been tremendously useful to me. Charles has never been one of those people you meet who's sort of a walking version of a CV, you know, constantly telling you where they've published or what they've done or what awards they've picked up. Maybe you've met those people, perhaps this weekend. You know, Charles comes across as a person, not a personage. Um, He's like that for many 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 different kinds of people who find their way into his classroom and that was true a long time ago and I think it's still true now he can talk to a lot of different kinds of people he sees the self as a conduit through which poems flow I think he has a long-standing and probably pre-verbal belief that the oracular understanding of how poems are made is the right one Um, that if you make yourself available that it comes through you into the world. Thus the person who writes the poem is the medium not the subject. And he taught us, as I, as I said at the very first, a loyalty to our own obsessions and fascinations, to the idiosyncrasies of our own subject matter and approach. And he taught us, this is a direct quote, never to denigrate one's own work. He always displayed an equanimity toward his older work, toward older impulses, older subject matter, older ideas that were the best he could do at the time, but not ultimately satisfying to him, ultimately insufficient. And I've never heard him judge his older work, and I've always heard him tell people not to denigrate their own work, not only because their poems deserve better, but because their classmates will do it for them, you know. (laughs) He always had that insistence that the poem matters, that it's the poem itself that matters at the cellular level, beginning with the stanza, the integrity of the stanza, the integrity of the line, the importance of the richness of vocabulary and of the phoneme. As a teacher in the classroom, many, many different kinds of students were bringing him many, many different kinds of poems. And I was struck even then as a boneheaded 19-year-old by the way he was able to meet many different kinds of work on its own terms. He, He was not asking is this a good kind of poem for you to have tried to write? He was asking, how do we make this poem more like what it wants to be? And that sense of, of divorcing his own ego or his own preferences from the students' wishes always seemed to me to privilege what was on the page in a way that I admired and have tried to carry forward in my own teaching. The proof of, of that practice of his is that his former students vary wildly in style. I mean, they're all over the place. If you look at the list, it's it's sort of formidable. You can't, it's, you know, it's like looking at somebody whose children look very dissimilar from one another and you're you're sort of asking yourself, really? Mm -hmm." (laughs) But that's how he was, is. Um, That sense of integrity of the poem leads his students to sound more like themselves. Uh, That's what I loved about him as a teacher. When I was his student at UVA, I formed what was either the dumbest or the smartest learning approach I've ever heard of, and I still don't know which it was. And specifically, it was that I made a standard practice, just a rule for myself, that I would never read my teachers' poems when I was their student. And, And I know that a lot of people feel very strongly in the opposite direction, that they don't feel that they should trust the advice if they can't see what the person giving the advice made of it. I never wanted to read my teacher's work perceiving that the advice they were giving me would lead inexorably toward the kinds of results that they themselves produced. I wanted to be able to receive their advice open-endedly without being steered toward the single solution that they had derived for themselves. And so, in a way, I suppose that's why I'm talking a lot more about Charles's demeanor in the classroom than his poems, which I also love, but which I read much later. I think that there is a subconscious tendency for a lot of teachers to be somehow gratified by the the work of students, and the, the gratification that Charles always seemed to find had to do with the work itself, not with the work's resemblance to his own, and I, I, I appreciate that very much. There's one piece of Charles's advice that I heard very recently, and that I have intentionally taken wrong. I mean that in a good good way. Charles and Mary came to the Virginia Festival of the Book two weeks ago, and they gave a question-and-answer session following a reading, which was brilliant, typically. And in the question-and-answer session, Charles veered distinctly toward a discussion of the idea of silence in poems, and he was sort of getting in the direction of The best poems do what prayer does, and prayer connects us with the infinite or the sublime in a way that exists before language. It suggests that cognitive thought is available to the mind of the infinite before we attach words to it. Therefore, the best poems must be the most silent poems. And I believe that he believes that. I can see the silences in his work, much as I can see the way that a lot of his favorite musicians use silence between notes but the advice that he gave himself about that is not the advice that I got from him in the classroom, which has been probably the most important advice I've ever gotten as a poet. Uh, Essentially, I didn't understand from Charles that the poem was an enactment of silence. I did understand that it was an enactment of something animal and cosmic and important and sacred and holy whether in a secular sense or a religious sense. It's not by accident that he reveres Gerard Manley Hopkins. But the way in which I always understood poems to enact something like prayer was not silent at all, because the most important lesson that I learned from Charles Wright has to do with the poem as a physical act of the body. I always understood from him, both from the way he acted, the way he read poems aloud, the way he wanted to hear them read aloud by other people, that the poem was a physical act of the human body, that a poem was alive only in the human voice, and that it could only ever be latent on the page. That sense of physicality, of the poem being a made thing that comes out of the human experience of having a body in the world, that underlies all of those physical metaphors that you find through 50 years of his poems. That's why he comes up with all of those tangible comparisons for figurative speech. In closing, I guess I want to say very briefly, the first time I ever went into a college classroom to teach poetry, the first time that I ever realized that it was my job all of a sudden in an inexplicable way, I didn't think anybody should have trusted me with this responsibility, possibly with good reason. I didn't understand why anyone had entrusted me with this responsibility. And I went into the men's room before teaching the class, and I ran very cold water out of the faucet, and I splashed it on my face and stood up and looked in the mirror, and I said to myself, you now have to do as good for those students as Charles Wright and Joy Graham did for you. Very important moment for me. It was the only time I've ever felt nervous going into a classroom, but it was surpassingly nervous. And I suppose that I will spend the rest of my teaching life hoping to continue to bring it around. Thanks very much. Next up is my friend and colleague, Jen Chang.
0: Thank you, John, for uh, asking me to fill in for Lisa Russpar, who couldn't be here. And thank you to my fellow uh, students of Charles. Um, I have not been back to AWP in six or seven years, and this is the only panel I would have come back for. So it's been really wonderful to spend time thinking about Charles as my teacher. So I'm I'm just going to read from my little script. I. I, I t- call, I'm calling this Improvisations on Charles Wright because it's, it's sort of disorganized. So uh, here I go. I remember once in office hours Charles asking me what church I belonged to. It was a question I'd never been asked before and didn't in that moment expect, as I had just given him a couple of poems which he had just read and which I would have said if anyone had asked, or about my father or the night or New Jersey. I knew the price of admission to Charles's office hours. I had to make him laugh. So instead of saying I was churchless, a born and raised atheist, I said, my family belongs to the Church of the Mushu Pork. This pleased him, <laughs> I did. This pleased him and distracted him. You know, I know that's not real Chinese food was his rejoinder. So then instead of addressing the question, we talked about line breaks or some cluttered syntax or Philip Larkin. But thinking back now, it is this question that's animated the life of my imagination as a writer. It's filled me with doubt and wonder. What church could I belong to and how? Why was this the question that my poems led Charles to ask me? One thing I learned from reading Charles long before I became a student was that the questions worth asking were hard to articulate and harder to answer. And the awkward choreography of never quite answering the question is what leads the poem to dance. I had learned so much from Charles as first his reader and then his student, and then once again as his reader, yet so many of these lessons are evasive, ineffable, radiantly contradictory, strange, and too dynamic and vast to assign an image to. What church do you belong to? Perhaps I am leaning too heavily on adjectives when I ought simply to turn to his poems. Portrait of the Artist with Hart Crane is a poem of his I teach most often as it's a gateway to the thornier mysteries of his later work. I'm gonna read the poem now. Portrait of the Artist with Hart Crane. It's Venice, late August, outside after lunch, and Hart is stubbing his cigarette butt in a wine glass. The look on his face, pre-moistened and antiseptic, a little like death or smooth cloud. The watery light of his future still clings in the pergola. The subject of all poems is the clock, I think, those tiny, untouchable hands that fold across our chests each night and unfold each morning, finger by finger, under the new weight of the sun. One day more is one day less. I've been writing this poem for weeks now with a pencil made of rain, smudging my face and my friend's face making a language where nothing stays. The sunlight has no such desire. In the small pools of our words, its business is radiance. If the line, the subject of all poems is a clock, shines like truth, the sudden sputter of doubt in the next line, I think, a qualifying clause, an iambic engine near breakdown, unveils the writer at work. I think expresses hesitation before turning to the deliberation of image-making. The body of time takes hold of the human body. My students often wonder if the speaker is drunk. There's a cigarette butt, an empty wine glass, a long-dead modernist poet in postprandial lull under the Venetian pergola. But the poet's performing mortal arithmetic. One day more is one day less, which is to say the poet's hard at work writing a poem. The sun's business is radiance, the poet's business, evanescence. To write with a pencil made of rain, like the watery light of Crane's future, is to pattern a void. Or as Charles writes in a later poem, out of nothing, nothing comes, the rain keeps falling. One writes, because of and despite Hart Crane, because of and despite the rain. It's a knowledge students often don't like or aren't ready for. It makes them uncomfortable to recognize that death is the mother of beauty. To be honest, I don't like thinking about time either, even though that's what I'm writing about. Time is what lets us know that we're going to miss the bus. It's the length of a song, an idle increment, a day's duration. Time doesn't tell us where to go, but it tells us when." I thought a lot about time when years after I finished my MFA at UVA, I began rereading the cantos. I had always loved Pound's early poems. His mistranslations of the Chinese were my first encounters with Asian literature, and the erotic glimpses afforded by his albas still excite me. However, various attempts at reading the cantos had stalled. His epic, built out of lyric fragments, described by Pound as a poem to include history. Took a long time to read, was hard, and had me looking in too many directions. Upon rereading, I began to recognize the form. Each canto layers language, landscape, and history, and performs a process of knowing by alternately confronting and withdrawing from an image or an idea. Pound weaves in certain strains of music, a continuing yet intermittent melody that trains the reader's attention just as the poem's challenging elusiveness strains it. But there are moments, too, of startling lucidity and feeling. And I'm quoting for Canto's, eight, Canto's 80. To write dialogue because there is no one to converse with. To take the sheep out to pasture. To bring your grain to nutriment. Gentle reader. To the gist of a discourse. To sort out the animals. Reading the pees and cantos in particular was a clarifying experience. I knew these cantos as an early influence on Charles. Pound's ability to see other landscapes in the landscape of central Italy, to see history and memory radiating out of the most quotidian images, birds resting on telephone wire, for example, had clearly given Charles a vision for future poetics. And speaking of birds resting on a telephone wire, here is canto 75. I thought it was gonna be a smaller room, but uh, it's it's worth looking at because you're you're reading like all this stuff and it's like nothing makes sense. Um, and then suddenly you get to this page, and it's just a it's a musical score. Um, it's called "Le Chant des Oiseaux," the song of the birds. And Pound wrote this um, along with the other P's and Cantos while he was in prison in the American Disciplinary Training Center in Pisa. Um, he was locked in a six by six foot cage exposed to the elements, wasn't allowed to talk to anyone, but he would look out from this cage every day and see the Apennine Mountains and birds on on the wire. Um, and that's, in some ways, this is what that looked like to him. Musical notes on a page. Um, locked in a six- foot by six foot cage exposed to the elements, he could see the apennine mountains and birds on a telephone wire, which he kept count of in his head and in his poem. Cantus 75 is a citation, an ekphrastic, a found poem, but it is also a metonym for his lover, the violinist Oko Rudge, who had once performed the song of the birds, and it's a visual representation of what Pound saw every day from his cage, the landscape of his mind and heart mirroring his material landscape in an abstract yet highly specific way. Charles's poems urge the reader to look outside oneself, to the material world that subsumes you, and to the past, historical, natural, and personal, that consume you. He teaches us that it can never be the ego that is the nothing that nothing has come to. Nothing ought to be the soul, the uncertainty of a soul, the soul of our uncertainty. And only in looking for and at nothing can we begin to see it. What church do you belong to, one might ask? Looking at the birds, in a way, is a way of looking at the sky. For Pound, this looking was a vision of freedom, an indeterminate future, a game of numbers that's oddly poetic, a song, a constellation of histories, a faraway love and a much-sullied paradise. If I had learned to read Ezra Pound through Charles Wright, I had also learned to read Charles Wright through Ezra Pound. He reimagines Canto 75 in the last section of his longer lyric, "Scar Tissue." where the birds are named and counted and quarreling. Ravens are flying in and out of the summer woods. Two, I think, no, three, each buzzed, then buzzed again by a blackbird up from the tall reeds by the pond's edge. The ravens bleat and the blackbirds attack and fall back, attack again, the ravens upstream by now, little dark points, the blackbirds invisible as yesterday's prayers, but working hard, Lord, working hard. Looking at the birds, the poet sees his own reflection, a quarrel with himself only, and here he's complicating Yates' definition of poetry. The self is divided into ravens and blackbirds, variations on a theme, one pair of nature's false friends. The difference between a raven and a blackbird is a difference between Poe and Stevens, the dark story and the dark thought. And that's another one of Charles's many layers in a poem. And while their quarrel might be read as an allegory of Charles' anxiety of influence, it ultimately culminates in his primary poetics, the effort that erases the self. The blackbirds become invisible as yesterday's prayer, an incantation so very familiar to all of us poets, working hard, Lord, working hard. Two brief passages stick out to me in an essay Charles wrote long ago about his teacher, Donald Justice. This is the first one. He was a teacher in the best possible way. He opened you to what was possible and was, what was impeccable in his own work. And we don't say enough about our teachers. We are all a product of who we read and who told us what. Let me say more about my teacher. I fear that in my remarks on Charles, I'm suggesting that he taught me to read a lot, write a lot, and accept the little I know. I'm not saying that, and I'm also not not saying that. And yet, the fruit of not knowing can be so sweet, and its abundance, there's so much I don't know, is vexing in our infinite appetite for knowing, but I must know, even more so. My faith in poetry and language falls short, often, but my faith is there. It brings me to the page as a reader and a writer. It brings me to want to share what's on that page. You know I know that to talk about one's best teacher risks failure, and I confess I've failed Charles countless times. Every time I've read a poem again and again and then again and finally see what I did not or could not before, I recognize the possibility that there is still more to see, the grief of words and the praise. It's the same with writing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I keep doing it, and I learned that from my teacher. I have faith in my not knowing." so I'm going to close with the last section of one of my favorite poems of Charles's from Zone Journals Um, it's from Chinese Journal it's the last stanza what can anyone know of the sure machines that make all things work to find one word and use it correctly providing it is the right word is more than enough an inch of music is an inch and a half of dust thank you
2: Good morning. I know John said to avoid hagiography, so I will not be selling the relics and dispensations I had planned previously, but see me afterward if you're inclined. Thank you all so much for being here today. I know that the 9 a.m. slot on Saturday morning is something like a gauntlet being thrown down for all of us. So I imagine that the presence of all of you here speaks very much to yours and our collective reverence for a great poet and a better person. Thank you. My name is Dave Lucas. I studied with Charles Wright in the MFA program at the University of Virginia between 2002 and 2004. One of the things that I learned there was that one of the great pleasures of being a student of Charles's is the sense of community and even of family among fellow students of his, such as Jen and Mary and John, and it's very much an honor for me to be among their company today. I want to talk today about Charles's own rigorous ideas of form and structure, as well as his remarkable capacity for imparting that rigor to his students without imposing on them his own aesthetic. As committed to his own sense of form, as he has always seemed to me, he is just as invested in the idea that other poets must find the forms and structures that suit the poems they want to write. I want to begin with the first Charles Wright poem I ever loved from his 1998 collection, Appalachia. The poem is an elegy called Thinking About the Poet Larry Levis, One afternoon in late May. Rainy Saturday. Larry dead almost three weeks now. Rain starting to pool in the low spots and creases along the drive. Between showers, the saying goes. Roses and rhododendron wax glint through dogwood and locust leaves. Flesh colored, flesh destined, spring in false flower, goodbye. Goodbye. The world was born when the devil yawned, the legend goes. And who's to say it's not true? Color of flesh, some inner and hidden bloom of flesh. Rain back again, then back off. Sunlight suffused like a chest pain across the tree limbs. God, the gathering night, assumes it. We haven't a clue as to what counts in the secret landscape behind the landscape we look at here. We just don't know what matters, May dull and death-distanced, sky half-lit and grackle-ganged. It's all the same dark. It's all the same absence of dark. Part of the rain has now fallen, the rest still to fall. This poem, like so many of Wright's poems, addresses his fundamental doubts about everything. (laughs) The weather outside his window, the weather in the mind, life and death, salvation and extinction. Charles tells us so much about each of these by telling us how little he knows about all of them. In fact, one of the great lessons I've taken from Charles and one that you've heard echoed here already today since I never quite got that lesson from Plato and Socrates is that as persons and as poets, we must be skeptical of any sentence that begins with the phrase, I know, especially when we find those words creeping out of our own mouths. And yet for all his doubts... Writes, faith in form and structure is firm, and similarly so his sense that, as with language, landscape, and the idea of God, the essence of form and structure lies beyond our ability to comprehend. He has imagined form to be as organic as the spider spinning her web, the structure of her existence from her own body. He writes, I think one's poems should come out of one's body and life the way webbing comes out of a spider. But this has never meant autobiography in any recognizable sense. As we know, those poems of his are no more about the events of his life than the spider's silk is about anything. As long as the poem is of the poet, it need not be about the poet. But form is also a temporary stay against the organic processes of decline and decay, a glimpse of order in a world of entropy. In this way, form is also a ritual. Marking time, the lyric poem, is an attempt to defy time. This is, after all, the poet who writes that form is a transubstantiation of content and that each line should be a station of the cross. Each line should be a station of the cross. No pressure there for the rest of us, huh, Charles? So when he writes, Rainy Saturday, Larry dead three weeks now, he is counting time through the changes in weather, the changing calendar, and the ultimate changes of life and death. And in particular, he is counting with his lines of odd-numbered syllables. That particular line has 11, if you're keeping track. In theory, these lines are engineered to avoid falling into the bump-de-bump of tetrameters and pentameters. But I think there's something more than that to them. I think they function as ritual every bit as much as they do as prosody. The ritual counting of rosary beads, for instance. As his colleague Stephen Cushman has written, through these certain structures, syllable, line, stanza, sequence... Wright evokes the ultimate uncertainty that is his great subject. By the time we reach the end of the poem, part of the rain has now fallen, the rest still to fall. With its characteristic 13 syllables, we understand the fecklessness of any attempt to master time simply by measuring it. But we can also revel in the beauty of such attempts, in beauty that elusive quality made possible because time passes. For Wright, though, poetic form is spatial as well as temporal. Wright's poetics also includes his understanding of the page itself as a landscape as significant to him as the meadows near the Yak River or the foothills above the Piave. A Charles Wright poem has its own sound, of course, but also its own look, in large part because of his use of the drop-down hemi-stitch, or, to put it in his much more poetic phrase, the lowrider. rider. He attributes to Cezanne his concern with the architecture of the poem, the landscape of the word, but he borrows the lowrider from Pound and uses it to his own effects. Make it old is the new, make it new. (laughs) The lowrider spreads the line out across the page horizontally while the poem continues its familiar descent down the page. The outlines of the printed poem come to define the limits of the page's blank space much as Wright has suggested that the visible world suggests the invisible landscape beyond the landscape we look at here. The lowrider also expands the surface area of the poem, allowing for a longer line that neither sags nor breaks, but it also allows Charles to modulate his tone. And if you know the person, you know that the modulations in tone are some of the best parts of conversation with him. I think that's there in the poems, too, so that he can open a stanza with a line that, in my opinion, risks melodrama, the world was born when the devil yawned. Then temper the statement with a drop-down phrase, the legend goes, at once making the claim and distancing himself from it. The next line asks, and who's to say it's not true? So in a single breath and in two and a half lines, he can repeat the legend, doubt it, and then doubt the doubt. As long as I've known him or known of him, Wright has worked and has taught others to work. In the synapse between certain structures and uncertain metaphysics. And for all the idiosyncrasy and rigor of his own poetic method, Wright's pedagogical approach has always been more a matter of negative capability than of egotistical sublime. When I was a recovering pentametrist, <laughs> Charles would happily discuss ionics and inverted first feet with me during his office hours. When I turned my focus to free verse, he would talk to me about that more mysterious idea, the integrity of the line. And in workshop, Charles seemed to aim his suggestions simultaneously at the poem under discussion and somehow outward at poetry itself. But form and structure are not merely characteristics of finished poems. They are also habits for composing them. What Charles also taught me as a writer was not to fear not writing that patience and attention were disciplines to be cultivated just as much as composition and revision. One day, frustrated at what I'd been writing, or miraculously what I'd not been writing, I confessed to him that I wished I were one of those writers who could write every day. Hell, he said to me, nobody does that. They just tell you you are because they feel like you're supposed to. (laughs) Part of me knew he was saying this simply to make me feel better, but another part of me felt that I had just been given permission to wait to look around and listen and think, as he so often shows himself doing in his own poems, and that the poems themselves would come from there. Not exactly silk from a spider, but I'll take it. If Charles Wright had never taught a single course or workshop, he would still stand as one of the most influential and exemplary poets of our time. Fortunately for us, we also have his example and his influence as a teacher and as a person. The same benevolence and curiosity The same self-effacing humor and generosity that we find in his poetry, we find as well in his mentorship and friendship. His advocacy on behalf of younger writers, although I think he'd wince to hear me using that in the comparative younger writers, and his model as a constant student of the craft of poetry. For someone who insists on how little he knows, he always seems to know just how to speak to a student or friend in need of guidance. Here's hoping that he continues to write and speak, and that we continue to read and listen for years to come. Thank you.
3: It's uh, daunting to try to say something about Charles Wright for whom I have so much admiration and gratitude and daunting actually to say anything about him as a teacher. I know many of his Many of you know his poems intimately and have worked with him. Uh, I hope there's some room for conversation at the end. When asked in his Paris Review interview what he looks for in the poems he reads by younger poets, Charles Wright answered, Language that has a life of its own, seriousness of subject matter, beyond the momentary gasp and glitter, a willingness to take on what's difficult and beautiful, a willingness to be different and abstract, a willingness to put on the hair shirt and go into the desert and sit still and listen hard and write it down and tell no one. I don't remember Charles explicitly saying this in his undergraduate writing workshops when I was a student. It was never Charles's way to tell us what kind of poem we should want to write. But this is what I came to understand in his classes or something very like it. Regardless of whether or not I had the skill to do it, he gave me permission to take on what was difficult and beautiful. I would not have had the words to explain it then, but my time with Charles, with his thoughts, his questions, his seriousness, which was always serious no matter how funny, showed me how much was possible in poetry as well as how much was required. Was I willing to put on the hair shirt and go into the desert and sit still and listen hard and write it down, and tell no one. Charles's most important teaching may not have come through explicit statement, but at the same time, some of Charles's statements have become so vital to me that I think of them daily, habitually, all the time. Here are a few. One, what you have to say most likely will not be news. How you say it just might be. Two, unless you love the music of words, you are merely a pamphleteer. Three, art tends toward the certainty of making connections. The artist's job is to keep them apart, giving it tension and keeping it alive letting the synapse spark. Four, new structures, new dependencies. Five, where else do we live but in our own constructions? The first book by Charles I ever picked up was Zone Journals. I remember standing in Daedalus Bookshop in Charlottesville and looking at the black and red abstract sketch on its cover, followed by poems titled with titles like Yard Journal, March Journal, Night Journal, titles that suggest their meditations were not provoked by extraordinary circumstances, but by ordinary daily life. Here was an abstract and dynamic cover that said to me, Art. Here was a book of journal poems that said to me, life. The idea is entirely obvious, but the experience of that book, of reading that book, showed me how art, extraordinary art, could be made out of ordinary life. It was like being alive twice, Linda Gregg once said, reflecting on the opportunities of a poem. I hadn't been part of the experiences from which the poems emerged, but I could feel, could participate in, the life these journal poems made. It wasn't so much what they had to say, of course, but how they said it that was big news to me. Every poem seemed to emerge from sitting still and listening hard. A journal of the year of the ox observes... These monochromatic early days of October throb like a headache just back of the eyes. A music of dull, identical syllables, almost all vowels, ooing and aahing as though they would break out of in speech and tell us something. But nothing's to be revealed, it seems. Each day the shadows blur and enlarge. The rain comes and comes back, a dripping of consonants as though it too wanted to tell us something, something unlike the shadows and their stray signs, unlike the syllable the days make behind the eyes, cross-current and cross-grained and unlike the sibilance of oak tree and ash. Attention. Charles shows us over and over can't be forced to yield revelation no matter how much we desire it. He has said all his poems seem to be an ongoing argument with himself about the unlikelihood of salvation. What I found in them, what I still find, is a kind of salvation of the spiritual, of the possibility of the spiritual, a a way of engaging with the spiritual that does not depend on faith. He says he fell from grace when he was 16, but he calls his poems his devotions and compares them to prayer beads, each one in some sense circular, returning to where it began. Zone Journals was an early example of how much amplitude the long line could yield how much of the quotidian it could include while still rendering the poem as a kind of prayer bead in a larger sequence. More recently, Sestet's works formally with the elegance of silence. Each Sestet is missing its octave, but the octaves, which traditionally, of course, introduce the problem of the sonnet, don't need to be spelled out. The problem is clear, given. Mortality and the question of salvation. We know the problem. We know we have a finite amount of time to face that problem. So the sestets meditate on it over and over, each like a prayer bead on a rosary that can never deliver you beyond its circle. Recently, when I was talking about these poems with someone He said he found the poems of Charles Wright to be like fantastical Parisian boats floating past at night, bright with hundreds of delicate, multicolored lights. I like those boats, I shot back nonsensically, having no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) What I understood was the comment's dismissiveness. But consider the light In one of those lit up poems. Here's the end of section 21 from Littlefoot. This is the entry of evening light where I am it seems it's always just before sunset at least nowadays even in memory. Like Garda, Venice of course and every place one can stand upon the abiding earth. Local color still deep in the heart. Oh my, as I said one time, I love to see the evening sun go down. All the little black bugs have left the dandelions. The robins have gone. Even the clouds have changed to the color of 2% milk out the north window. The grasses stand bright and erect as acolytes. I remember the way they stood at Desanano like that some 45 years ago, though I didn't pay much attention then, 23, on my way to anywhere else. We're always, apparently, on our way to anywhere else, and miss what we're here for. The objects we never realize will constitute our desire, the outtakes and throwaways of the natural world, the movement of creek water at dusk, the slippage and slow disappearance of what we love, and the silence of the here and now that will survive us and call back. The barn house is upside down in the motionless pond and pine trees, two ducks, land suddenly and everything's carried away and the blurred, colorful pieces. This is hardly just a pleasure ride. Something infinite behind everything appears and then disappears, he says, in the other side of the river. The more luminous anything is, the more it subtracts what's around it, making the unseen seen, he says in Yard Journal. And in the journal of the Year of the Ox, he asks, What is life of contemplation worth in this world? How far can you go if you concentrate? How far down? There's nothing inherently virtuous about concentration here. It's this kind of humility that seems to me the bedrock of his teaching and his poetry. In an interview he commented, the problem with all of us as we get older is that we begin writing as though we were somebody. One should always write as if one were nobody. We should always write out of our ignorance and desire and ambition. There's no success in poetry. There is only the next inch, the next handhold out of the pit. Charles Wright might still be willing to put on the hair shirt and go into the desert desert and sit still and listen hard and write it down and tell no one. But I am grateful that he does tell. Here is another last example. Monastery at Versac. We've walked the grounds, inspected the vaults and the old church, looked at the icons and carved stalls, and followed the path to the bishop's grave. Now we sit in the brandy-colored light of late afternoon under the locust trees, attended and small from the monastery. Two nuns hop back and forth like grackles along the path. The light drops from the leaves. Little signals of dust rise uninterrupted from the road. The grass drones in its puddle of solitude. The stillness is awful, as though from the inside of a root. Time's sluice and the summer rains erode our hearts and carry our lives away. What we can hold in our two hands, sinking each year another inch in the earth. Mercy upon us, we who have learned to preach but not to pray. The last line is a concession about the poem as a whole. It admits that as prayer, the poem is failure. Despite the dazzling attentiveness of these lines, the final line insists that they come closer to preaching than praying, deliberately diminishing the poem for the sake of elevating our conception of prayer. Prayer, perhaps, is that thing unlike time and the summer rain, that will not erode our hearts. Whatever it is, the poem points to it as something beyond these lines. In this, the poem becomes an ode to prayer itself, and perhaps even a preparation for it. Charles has said that poems aspire to the condition of prayer, and perfect prayer is silence.